It don't matter what I try I just can't win and I don't know why There's a fork in every road I pick the wrong one and then I go American loser, yes I am Disenfranchised from everything well, I fall up and I fall down An American loser the day I was born Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of American Loser. Now, I say another as if we haven't been missing a lot of weeks lately. We have, guys. All right, what can I say? It's hot outside. Water mains are breaking. Sewer lines are overflowing. Uh, my excavation career is on fire. Okay? <laughs> so, that's the problem. If you so are, is the Jersey Shore right now, so don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, that's a, well, we had to sneak out here and do it on a, uh, a Wednesday. Uh, shout out to all my buddies over at Public Sewer. Sorry I called out today, guys. Had to get this episode recorded. <laughs> I got in real late last Damn night, man. Priorities. It was a good one here, but uh, uh, I miss doing the show. Uh, if you're a regular listener to the show, I want to say thank you so much for sticking with us here. I'm sorry we're not putting out more content for you. We're trying to uh, be as regular as possible with that, but the schedule has been bad. If you're a new listener, welcome to American Loser, all right? My name's KP Burke. I'm a New Jersey-based comedian and uh, shovel guy. Um, I basically play in the sewers all day, and then at night I read about history and tell dick jokes. So uh, I'm here. So you're a ghostbuster. As close as possible. That's it. Okay. In fact, I have to, in my head, I have to pretend at all times that I am actually a ghostbuster so that I don't get depressed at the fact that I'm. It helps you through the day. (laughs) Don't worry, the new one's getting made right now, so we're good. Uh, I'm nervous about that one, too, buddy. It's a. it gets weird, though, because uh, if you are a regular listener to the show, then you already know that in the building right now is my handsome dilf of a dad, Larry Burke. How are you, sir? Oh, we're just doing wonderful, wonderful. I hear you. And, of course, since we are back at our home studio, a shared universe podcast studio in Eatontown, New Jersey, Mike and Ming always take great care of us. They gave us the top podcast engineer, producer, overall genius, millionaire playboy. Oh, wow. The big kahuna in the <laughs> building. Listen to buddy. that freaking introduction, man. I am not worthy. I we am missed not worthy. you, pal. No, we... I know. I've missed you guys. Well, uh, I've had some duds I... of podcasts lately. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we'll I'm, I'm excited for a good laugh. We can't brighten your day a little bit. <laughs> it's, uh, it is tough with that. It's um, Well, because I was talking about because, I, I mean, I am I am a comic. That's that's the, the main thing about me. And there's so many comedians out there that put out these podcasts. And they're the problem is they're so rooted in narcissism that they think that they're interesting enough to be compelling for the duration of their episode. Now, for me, I have such low self-esteem, I have to do a research paper for you people every week (laughs) to try to earn my keep here. So if you're still with us, thank you so much. we got some cool changes coming up we're going to be working on, but we're going to get back on a regular schedule here with these, I promise you, okay? And today, as we talked about in the elevator ride up, Mr. Kahuna, we're going to be discussing, this guy's fascinating. I've been been blown away by him. Specifically, since I believe my uh, sophomore or junior year of high school is when I really started reading about this guy. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows the guy's name. Everybody knows a couple quotes attributed to him. But we're actually going to dive into the story of, and he truly is a loser in every sense of the word. Because, uh, I mean, loser can be many things. You can come out on the wrong side of history. You can be remembered as a giant douchebag. You can have some really embarrassing moments that come to light. But this you guy, he Charles checks all the toe. boxes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's got... A, B, C, N, D, all of the above. Yeah, if we were at the NFL Combine looking for losers, uh, this guy would definitely... I'm talking like second-round interest here. So, Well, here's my question. Is it self... 
self-done loserdom, meaning like did he bring it upon himself <laughs> eventually? Yeah, or was it kind of like kind of acquired over time? Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to uh, uh, I want to start spitting out some of the details here, and then I want you to keep score in your head if you can, Coons. Okay. And, t- and when I ask you that at the end, you tell me what you're walking away with. Cause, okay, here we go. Because there's a lot of weird shit with uh, our friend here, uh, Mr. William Randolph Hearst. That's today's American loser. Um, now, I came away with this because there's people that look at him as a villain. There's people that look at him as kind of like, a, a, you know, I said millionaire playboy earlier. There was certainly that quality to him. Uh, now, a couple of years ago, Dad, you're traveling out West Coast. Mm-hmm. All right, you wound up checking out a, a certain building. Maybe uh, maybe one would refer to it as a castle. Yeah. Hearst Castle Hearst in castle. San yeah, Simeon, yeah. California. It's, it's definitely a gemmed attraction in the AAA tour book. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you and Mom went out there, yeah. and you got a chance to look at it. And, and we found out some weird stuff. Kahuna, there's a, a often request. This is one of the most gorgeous castles uh, in, in all the entire world, if you ask me. It can rival anything in Europe. That's what he, he wanted it to be designed as. Um, but he gets requests all the time. The Hearst family is often requested to allow people to film there. Okay, They want to film movies, TV shows. There's only two projects that have been greenlit in order to uh, get approval to film at Hearst Castle. Ooh. Uh, Dad, do you know one of them? No, I don't. We talk, a legendary movie, Kirk Douglas? Um. Nah. He's Roman gladiator type. <laughs> yeah. Spartacus. Don't for, don't, oh, Spartacus, yeah, really? Yeah, Spartacus okay. was filmed over there. So they used, Who's uh, Spartacus? Yeah, so that was like one of the villas over there. And then uh, the other thing that was filmed there, this is what I was not prepared for. There's a video by Lady Gaga called G-U-Y or something that is Get filmed. Get the hell out of yeah, here. And for research, I was watching it um, alone <laughs> in my room. Only for research only. Yeah, alone in my room at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, I'll put it to you this way. It's not the, the, the projects I was waiting for. So forever. now we know your plans at 2 o'clock in the morning is yeah. watch Lady Gaga and yeah. and talk it, and read, research Hearst Castle. If we're going like to stay friends, if we're going to stay friends, Kahuna, there's one rule. You don't want to touch my iPad. <laughs> oh, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, you're right, because then I need to wipe my hands with some hand sanitizer afterwards. That's the bottom so. line. Um, now, here's where we get interesting. So you're going to bring up some pictures of the, uh, the mansion up here, if you can. Hearst Castle. It's absolutely breathtaking. It's so cool. There's an awesome YouTube video that does aerial footage of, like, flying around. I mean, the thing's incredible looking. It looks like, and this is an exact quote, George Bernard Shaw, one of uh, the, the great playwriters of all time, was invited to the house and uh, was hanging out at the castle, which was a regular thing. We're going to cover all that here later. This giant friggin' American castle. And the quote that George Bernard Shaw had, he goes, it's a nice place, man. It's the kind of place God would you know, buy if he could afford it. <laughs> Which I thought was a good quote, man. But in order to have this, a lot of times... Uh, now, Hearst is a genius. We're going to see that as we go through his life here. But he does start off on pretty good footing. So he's born April 29th, 1863. All right? A lot going on in the country in 1863. Fair to say, Dad? Yeah, it's the Civil War's <laughs> in rage, yep. So William Randolph Hearst is born into big money. He is the son of George Hearst, a big-money millionaire who'd struck it rich in the gold mines. Now, what's interesting, too, uh, anyone who's listening out there who's a fan of the show Deadwood, uh, like I was, George Hearst actually shows up in Deadwood and is one of the main uh, characters in uh, the end of season two and all of season three and the movie that just came out, too. Um, They take a lot of poetic license with him, but he's not exactly a sympathetic figure. Yeah. Okay. So, the Hearst fortune includes large amounts of land as well. Uh, George Hearst and Phoebe... William's mother, who, by the way, uh, like every guy who strikes it rich, is half his age. All right? So go ahead and marry somebody who's half your age and then have a kid. Uh, And uh, they're both born in Missouri. All right? 
And now uh, William, because he's you know being born into money too, it's almost symbolic that he's going to be born out in San Francisco. So well, that's where the money was at the time too in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. A lot in of interesting stuff going now, on out there. Yeah, now in 1863, where uh, William Randolph is born. I mean, you're in California, and you're really not in the shooting war of uh, back east with uh, the Civil War going No, on. and that's not to say there wasn't plenty of violence to be found if you looked for it yeah, in yeah. California. Right. Um, but uh, here's what gets interesting. So uh, he's out in San Francisco. He's attending some of the finest prep schools, actually. One of them was uh, out in New Hampshire, I believe, uh, until he's accepted into a little school called Harvard Kahuna. Have you heard of that one? Kahuna no here of Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, have you heard of the Harvard Lampoon? Yes. Okay, that is like all the Simpson writers were from there. Conan O'Brien was from there. A lot of very, very famous writers. Guess who's a member of that friggin' club? William Randolph Hearst. Yeah, he wrote for the... Uh, so if he lived long Harvard enough, he could have been a Simpsons writer. Yeah, yeah exactly. There you, go. <laughs> there you go. Go on to be really be something famous. Simpson! <laughs> but, uh, so in 1885, he gets accepted into Harvard. Within two years, he's expelled from Harvard. All right, a couple of crazy pranks he was pulling. He would organize massive beer parties out in the Common Square over in Harvard. So it'd be like, uh, he would just start tailgating out of nowhere. Pretty much that was what his gimmick was. So kind of a fun, uh, he seems like he, he might got be a fun out of, guy. He got kicked out of Harvard for that? Yeah, he's almost got a Van Wilder uh, gig Very to Animal House. Well, there's oh, man. Yeah. Now here's where he goes full but Animal House. his daddy house. had money, though. Daddy had money, and uh, that's why uh, they, they, he got away with a lot of shit. He couldn't get away with this one last thing. He used to send chamber pots for pissing in to the professors that he didn't like with a photo of them placed inside the chamber pot. You got to so, have something to aim with. Like, so, <laughs> think, think about a teacher you hated. Why are they getting offended? <laughs> He's sending to, it's a great Christmas present. Like, I hated Mr. Randall. That was the teacher I hated in high school. He taught television production. He comes into the story later, too, because he's actually the guy that made me watch <laughs> Citizen Kane. Miss Gronchewski, <laughs> you can kiss my fucking ass if you ever hear this podcast, okay? You fucking suck. Oof. Glad you guys got over it. Yeah, Kahuna's about to drop a mixtape on us. Yeah. But, uh, so that was the thing, is that uh, he'd take a teacher he didn't like, put their face in the chamber pot, and then send it to him. And the idea was, like, I'm gonna, I piss on your face, everybody does, kind of a and that finally got him in enough trouble that he got kicked out of Harvard. Very Monty Python. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was funny. He's got a sense of humor. That's very clear here. And it shows up more in his life, too. But now after his expulsion from Harvard, Hearst sets out beginning. Uh, he wants to create his own legacy. Uh, you know, but he's, his father, I believe, is uh, uh, ill and passing away. You know, it's kind of a, a, a tough time for him. But he, what he does is that he takes over control of a San Francisco-based newspaper from his father. His father was given this newspaper to pay off some sort of a, a debt that was owed to him. So the guy goes, hey, I can't pay you, but how about you just take over my business? And George Hearst didn't know dick about journalism. So William Randolph now makes it, this is, that that's literally what he's known for. Yeah, and William Randolph was studying uh, journalism and stuff by being involved with the Harvard Lampoon and everything else. I mm-hmm. mean, this was a, a passion of his early on. So now uh, he's starting out with a newspaper that daddy bought for him. Again, not too bad. All right. It's a <laughs> um, now, quality thing that the Hearsts are always known for is they, they get the best. They're not afraid to spend money on things. All right. So takes over this paper known as the San Francisco Examiner, and he buys the most modern equipment he can get his hands on right away and employs the very best writers. You ready for some of these goddamn names, Kahuna? Let's hear them. Names like Ambrose Bierce, who wrote An Occurrence at Owl Creek. That one's for you, Cousin Kelly. All right. Um, Mark Twain. Yeah, I heard of him. Yeah, Mark Twain. <laughs> Mr. Samuel Clemens coming on through. That's for our friend Lynette Palladino. She always, <laughs> she's a big fan of his. And get this one. Even our boy, 
a former loser on the show making another appearance, Jack London. All right. Wow. So he's yeah. got the killer writers out there, and he's got uh, the best uh, equipment. Uh, he's got the best writers. He's paying top dollar. So this guy's been in our MCU for a minute. This is his <laughs> solo movie now. Okay. <laughs> um, but it's funny because uh, the paper, the San Francisco Examiner, is following a populist approach. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Do you ever meet somebody, Dad, in life that, you know, they, they'll, they'll – they don't necessarily have their feet entrenched in a position. They kind of just they're fluid with whatever's gonna, you know, be most beneficial Go with the to flow. them. Yeah, so. weather vane. Yeah, weather well played. A weather vane opinion. <laughs> well, uh, he's got a populist approach that he's doing out there in the Bay Area. And if you remember, you know, and San Francisco is still pretty much this way to to this day. They're a little bit left leaning out there. Okay, they're not um, uh, they're not a pickup truck uh, with, with a freshly slain deer in the back of it kind of people out there. <laughs> yeah, so. Um, so he's got this great paper that's coming out, and he's starting to, you know, uh, he, he, it's a hit. He's finding his rhythm here, all right? He's starting to figure stuff out. Uh, now, San Francisco, he's got a good thing going. But we all know the bottom line is you got to make it in New York, because what's the dumb quote? If I can make it there, I can make, make it, it anywhere in New right. Jersey. What um, a dumb fucking quote. Also, I, I've <laughs> never, like, I never understood that. You, you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. Oh, so that means you're... Tolerant of people shouting at you while you get into a fucking cab. <laughs> I, none of us are big fans of New York City here. I don't. Think. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Me not being one of them, and I lived in New York for a year. That shit was bullshit. It's. Uh, I don't enjoy it, but There's when you a- gotta go, like here's the reason I go there. I go there because I have to go for comedy. And George, I'm sorry, not George Hurst, William Randolph Hurst knew that he had to go there because you had to have success in the New York market if you're going to be right. a media success. Which right. is what he's trying and to that's do. What yeah. he's trying to do is he's trying to capture all media. And what's the current media of the day is newspapers. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not, you know, it's not TV or radio or anything. No uh, Hollywood yet. No, yeah, no Hollywood yet. So um, it always makes me laugh when you see those pictures, Dad, of uh, it'll show a bunch of kids on their smartphones, and I'll be like, whatever happened to kids these days? And then somebody will post the photo of an old uh, 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 railroad car, and everybody's just got the paper open. It's like, we, we don't want to talk to each other. Right. We're not all going to be holding hands linked up together, you know, singing the Beatles because we're all happy because we're not distracted by smartphones. It's people just want to be. We've left always alone. been non-communicative. Different yeah. source of media. That's all. But Hearst is trying to uh, capture it all. You know, he he's made it big in San Francisco, but now the next uh, the next step up is to make it big in New York. Well, he's got a, he's got an idea here. So he goes out and he buys a failing paper. And this is one thing I like about him. He'll buy a failing business and then turn it around. Uh, there's certain people that are just able to do that. That's always impressive. Uh, Arnold Rothstein, who we talked about in the show, but that was like what he was known for was buying a failing business and then fixing it. So he buys a failing paper known as the New York Morning Journal in 1895. It sets into motion a very nasty feud that will go on for a couple of years here with the owner of a paper called the New York World, a guy by the name of – you ever hear of this dude, uh, Kahuna? Joseph Pulitzer? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Yep. Big Kahuna's heard this name yeah. before. So he's a real dude, and uh, they have this incredible beef between the two of them here. Now, they're both doing uh, certain things here. We're, I'm going to throw to you here in a second, LP, because you are the subject matter expert on this. Yeah, but, you know, it's also just a little interesting side note, too, is that while Hearst was at Harvard, you know, and he was involved with the Harvard Lampoon and everything else, he actually interned briefly with, with Hearst Shit. and admired admired the way he ran his newspaper with you know, his style and uh, his methods of re- reporting and that kind of stuff. So Hearst interned with Pulitzer or the other way around? Hearst interned for Pul- uh, with Pulitzer, yeah. Okay, so he went, that's right, interesting. Right. So he was like <laughs> his mentor kind of a thing, uh, briefly. 
Um, well, that that even that that often last line. read often read Hearst uh, often read Pulitzer newspapers while he's in briefly in college at Harvard. So, yeah, he was influenced heavily by Pulitzer. It's weird when they they get like this, man. But uh, so I'm loving this. Uh, Hearst, when he comes in, he buys the uh, the New York Morning Journal. Um, he goes ahead and he starts rating some of Pulitzer's top writers, and uh, and brings in his best talents from his own successful paper back in San Francisco. Now he shows up. He's going to pay more than Pulitzer. He's going to give uh, the writers page one uh, bylines on the front page. That means, like, let's say, Big Kahuna writes an article. You don't have to wait until the end of the article. You know, back in section S three to find out it was written by Big Kahuna. It'll have a picture of you next to your article. And you'll have your little friggin' name next to it as well, which I won't say your real name on here for your safety. I don't know how it'll fit on the paper. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Jesus. That's the headline. The byline is the headline. But you you appeal to the uh, you appeal to the uh, the nature uh, of the the writers here that they're going to get more credit for that. This guy's paying more. He's got best equipment. He's got a, you're working in in a weird way. You're working with the same publications that are putting out the works of Mark Twain and Jack London, guys like that. Why wouldn't you want to come over here? Now, what always makes me laugh here is that the paper took a very largely democratic angle to reporting. So, you know, he was a populist out in San Francisco, whatever you guys are into. But in New York, there's already a conservative uh, uh, base over there for a lot of the papers and stuff. So he's coming and he's going to be the democratic left-leaning paper over here. Okay. Now, the tagline for the paper should tell you everything you need to know about this guy. While others talk, the journal acts. Yeah, so there's a little bit of a we're the heroes coming to rescue everybody kind of a vibe here. Now, we uh, can be heroes <laughs> just for one day. Now, Pulitzer uh, has a hard time keeping some of his staffers. Like we said, Hearst is paying more. He's more agreeable to work with. Tolerate a lot of the bad behaviors and habits of some of the writers. I don't know if you guys know this about writers. Uh, you know how they're all happy, highly functioning people? <laughs> yeah, um, right. Good family, f- man. Yeah, just booze Where bags. Where did you read that? The National Enquirer? <laughs> booze bags, drama queens, all that other stuff. But Hearst was always presenting himself as, guys, come on. We're here. You know, let's make let's make something happen. Let's do it. So he'd work with these people. But now the one thing that Pulitzer and Hearst had in common is that both papers are employing a style of journalism known as yellow journalism. Now, Dad, if I recall, yellow journalism is where men like being peed on by women. Is that correct? <laughs> that's not, no, no, Kevin, that's not, that's not quite it. Okay, I misunderstood. Similar, similar, I misunderstood. similar but not so, quite it. So that's no. why you don't want me to touch your iPad. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> so that being said, Dad, what actually is yellow journalism? Yellow journalism is a style of journalism that's not always, how do we put it politely, not fact-based, that uh, you might have paid somebody for the story kind of a thing and they're just going to make uh, shit up uh, and you're not you're not going to be checking your sources um you know other countries or other people might call it tabloid journalism that uh, as you're going through the checkout counter at oh, the so supermarket this, you see oh, so all this, this dude shit was the about. first tmz yeah they, oh that, okay that's close well it wasn't exactly the first but it was certainly it took it uh to an, another level now, the, why do they call it yellow journalism? Well, that's another little interesting tidbit. That um, now you've got Hearst. He just comes to New York. He buys this paper. He's in direct competition with uh, Pulitzer. Pulitzer's got a cartoonist by the name of uh, George Luck, L-U-K-S Lux, um, and he's writing this uh, comic strip um, that. A lot of the the 
the, I'm going to call them common people, like to read this comic strip. Kind of like a, a Peanuts uh, of today, you know, uh, Charlie Brown, that kind of thing. Take no people. He's looking right at me <laughs> to, to try and make sure that I'm on the same play, playing field. I appreciate it. Well, if we get something wrong on this, you're our subject matter expert for cartoons. Gotcha. There you See? go. <laughs> well, Lux was a pretty interesting guy in himself. Now, originally, Lux worked for Pulitzer. And then Hearst hires him away because the two papers are now in a, a direct war with one another, a circulation mm-hmm. war. Um, uh, Pulitzer, his paper costs you two cents. So what does Hearst do? He charges a penny for his paper. And it got nicknamed the penny paper. The penny paper. The penny paper, all right? Um, why? Because now you can increase your circulation, but if you have better circulation than the the other guy, well, then your advertisers are going to be paying more for advertising space within your paper because you've got a bigger circulation. You're you're hitting more people. So he was a bit of a a genius in that aspect, too. He's hiring away all of uh, Pulitzer's best writers. He's now hiring away one of the very popular cartoonists of the time, this guy, George Lux. So wait, was he making more money off of the advertisers than the actual circulation sales? Is that what kind of yeah, I was think, alluding to? Yeah, I think to? it was more advertising space uh, driven than it was for sounds, what you're actually making Because it sounds the, like when you're, charging the sale a, of the paper. when you're charging a penny for a paper. I mean, most at he's tech, what a smart move. Kind of. Well, there was also a line, too, that he could say that since his paper was a penny and the uh, uh, Pulitzer's paper was two pennies, was, well, I'm charging you, uh, he's Twice. charging you double right. you know, for an inferior product. It's almost like when um, Hunter S. Thompson, the, the counterculture guy from the 60s, when he, uh, he ran for mayor of uh, Aspen, I'm sorry, sheriff of Aspen, I think, and he, uh, he was a hippie dude, but he shaved his head bald. So that he could say, he goes, now I don't want to talk mean about my long-haired opponent over there <laughs> right. to make it seem like the straight-laced guy was actually there. Right. So there's a lot of cleverness to what they're doing over right. here. But wow. right now, the, the circulation for the paper, you're in at the ground floor of the newspaper business, too. This is like the, the golden age of it. And we're going to cover I mean, we saw, we've seen, because we're in the studio here, some of the pictures of what a fortune from a, a business like this can provide. Yeah. And this is not being done back in the day. Yeah, and plus, there weren't the only two newspapers in New York City. I mean, in New York City had a whole pile of different uh, newspapers, but these were the two biggest, if you will, now trying to duke it out for, uh, you know, the circulation mm-hmm. uh, the circulation wars. The one well, anyhow, find the guy, most on the garbage barge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this guy, Lux, does a comic strip that's a very popular comic strip that's called Hogan's Alley. Now, Hogan's Alley has a number of characters within the strip one of which is this yellow kid. Now, the yellow kid, the Hogan's Alley is like a lower socioeconomic ooh, <laughs> um, compiling of, uh, of people. Uh, the yellow kid, um, his, his name within the strip is Mickey Dugan. So he's got kind of an Irish flavor to his name. Uh, he's l- low class. He appears in like this yellow nightshirt that was probably a hand-me-down um, from somebody. The little rascals his theme music is right, just exactly. Kind little of rascals of the Bowery Boys have a very heavy uh, overtones kind of a thing that that would come later. Um, and then this uh, Mickey Dugan or the yellow kid also has a shaved head. 
Now, the inference there was, well, he's got a shaved head because he probably just got over a case of uh, head lice that they had to shave all his hair. So, that you know, it's so in, even, in dirty, the, even in those character details, it says a lot about who he is and where he's from. Exactly, exactly. Especially so considering he's the, definitely the times. On the, he's definitely on the wrong side of the tracks of New York City, all right, with the shaved head and... Uh, um, He's definitely from the Bronx. This uh, this comic strip, though, is extremely popular, this Hogan's Alley. Um, and it's actually, it, it goes from a single panel to a multi-panel strip. And it was one of the first um, um, cartoons that go to a color print strip on the Sunday papers. Oh, wow. So uh, that was like another first with, uh, with, uh, with Hearst. That uh, he is now buying what you said before, Kev, that you know he's always wants the biggest and the best. Well, he's one of the first newspaper men to go with a four a four color press. That it's not just black and white; it's a four color press, and he's offering these color, color comics on Sunday and, and everything else. Um, I just got to say it because I thought it was interesting too that this guy Lux, who wrote. Hogan's Alley, though, or the Yellow Kids, because it's very popular and he's now hired away. Um, well, the comic strip wasn't copyrighted. So, what does Pulitzer do? He hires another cartoonist to continue on with the Hogan's Alley and the Yellow oh, Kid and everything else. No. So, now both papers are running a Yellow Kid kind of comic strip. So both papers now have this yellow kid or this yellow journalism or the yellow journal, which both had the same style of, of reporting that, you know, heavy on crime, heavy on sensationalism, heavy with uh, sexual overturns. Kind of, you know, it's the dirt scandal. It's, mm-hmm. the, it's the, the dirt rag of, of the day. And both of them are trying to compete for the same populace, if you will. They both have this yellow kid in the uh, in their papers. Becomes known as yellow journalism, or yellow journal, oh, yellow man. journalism. So that's where that whole thing. This guy looks though. He was uh, an interesting character. The guy who wrote the original um, Hogan's Alley or the Yellow Kid, because uh, he actually turns it around and, and write, uh, writes up another um, strip. Um, that I don't know if you guys, uh, being the age that you are, would remember, but uh, Buster Brown, Buster Brown shoes. He does a comic strip, Buster Brown, which was extremely popular way back when that? in 1902. Buster Brown becomes the mascot for Buster Brown Shoe Company. Buster Brown, the cartoon character, has a, a sweetheart named called Mary Jane. There was a candy at one time, Mary Jane Candies, that this guy, Lux probably had like 200 different um um what's the word i'm looking for registrations if you will that they're allowed to use characters or make mention of him this he sold all kinds of oh, stuff oh yeah like a lot of merchandising merchandising put this right, character exactly, on this lunch boxes exactly. <laughs> mugs buster brown was in radio he was on comic books he was in film he was in theater he was on tv so um, he really hit it out of the park, and it was another uh, league leader. Got a loose, a re- real loose uh, jersey tie-in that uh, Lux originally worked for Thomas Edison in West Orange, New Jersey. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> we got a couple other uh, jersey tie-ins as well here, too. Um, the uh, 
the one thing I wanted to make sure if uh, the, the the most concise version of yellow journalism because that's the absolute matter of fact um, story you just gave us here, LP. But um, yellow journalism would tend to be more human interest stories rather than reporting the facts. So again, we talk about sensational headlines, large amounts of cartoons. Uh, both papers see a massive uptick in distribution. And like we said, Hearst called them penny paper. Life is good right now for both these guys. They're angry at each other, but the the business is taking off. There's a reason why the distribution's working. The war that they're going into is, you know, the paper is being picked up by more people uh, all the time. So they start even looking. Hearst was a genius. He starts putting out the paper in German because there's a lot of Germans who would just prefer to read the paper in their, you know, the native German language. But um, both papers wind up oddly losing a large amount of money while they're covering the Spanish-American War. Now, this is fascinating to me. Hearst, essentially, another name for the war, okay, uh, the Spanish-American War, which is the Cuban Revolution, if you don't remember, um, which uh, had the Battle of San Juan Hill won by a certain fellow by the name of Teddy motherfucking Roosevelt. <laughs> All right? Don't fuck with T.I. Yep. Who, right. uh, again, hilarious, because guess who's also on his way over to you know Cuba with uh, the guys from Nebraska, William Jennings Bryan. So all these people that we've covered in the past are all loose. These are all contemporaries. That's why I was saying as I was researching this episode, it gets to be like the last couple seasons of Game of Thrones when we know the people, but they haven't met each other yet kind of a thing. This this dude is our Captain America. He's the first loser. It's uh, He's everywhere. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's got his finger in a lot of different pies for sure. Well, uh, this one always uh, amused me here is that um, he is, Hearst is coming off as a war hawk in this regard because he is all about... Uh, the Cuban Revolution. He completely sides with the rebels on that. He doesn't like the Spanish atrocities that are going on over there. By the way, a lot of the Spanish atrocities that are being reported in the paper, yellow journalism, made up by yeah, Hearst right, himself. Right. So, um, not necessarily fact-based, but it, it makes a good story. Well, he got these people to a fever pitch in New York City where the people are marching because the, this is the one human interest story they found that I thought was so fascinating. Hearst sends a bunch of his reporters over to Cuba, and they're covering it. And the biggest story of the Cuban Revolution at this time, there's another incident that happens just after that overshadows all this. But I found this story out to be completely true today. The Cuban Revolution, uh, you know, one of the uh, women over there, if you will, who was a, a big member of the Cuban Revolution movement, was imprisoned by the Spanish. Her name was Evangelina Cosio y Cernesos. Uh, probably fucked that all up. But uh, if you're listening... You did pretty good. I, I feel like you tried to practice a little bit before. I've been told a lot of Spanish girls have to admit for a white boy I can uh, enunciate. Um, Not bad, man. Not but bad. Uh, so you're I, invited to the barbecue. I Don't worry. Uh, finally, Platanos. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. A, uh, a Cuban rebel who is captured in jail by the Spanish over here is our girl Evangelina. Now Hearst uh, is interested in the story. Sends his reporters over there. They realize that when they come in, they see her that she's this regal. Highly intelligent, sophisticated, and very attractive woman. So you just got your human interest story right there. You got your Mary Queen of Scots kind of thing going on. And if she's Cuban, she probably looks like that Camilla Cabela chick or whatever. And, I mean, that's not a hard sell. All right? <laughs> but uh, they're using her as the human interest story in order to stir up this anti-Spanish sentiment. Uh, one of his reporters even winds up helping Evangelina escape from prison. Brings her back to the United States. The story, of course, largely detailed and available only in the New York Morning Journal That's by right. William Randolph Hearst. So now, uh, like we said earlier, the Spanish-American War is referred to as the paper wars a lot because the newspapers were so involved with, you know, drumming up everything here. But uh, a couple of weeks after Evangelina's whole incident, Dad, uh, something else happens. That well, there was a lot of things that were leading up to that. And again, right. if, if it makes a good story, print it because people are going to be clamoring for it. And this whole thing with Cuba... 
and you know the, this yellow journalism is accredited with um, starting the Spanish American War mm-hmm. or really drumming it up interest to have us go into into Cuba to save the the Cuban people but Cuba has been of interest to the United States for a long long time I mean way back when with Tommy Jefferson Tommy Jefferson was saying you know what let's not get so involved with that right now in his day correct because eventually that's going to happen Cuba is going to become part of the United States one way or the other anyhow the theory was that it was the best place to launch any sort of an invasion from too since you're so close to the United States and also by the way at Thomas Jefferson's time uh, Florida and all that other stuff that's still Spanish down there. It's still Spanish and um, but the Spanish Empire if you will is really kind of on the, the waning moments there on the on the well, downslide the, the deposed the... queen was banging Dan Sickles so. <laughs> right 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 so it wasn't <laughs> that far but um, you know things really started to heat up again um, with with this whole Cuban thing as the United States, was starting to become at odds with one another um, over the whole slavery issue. Cuba definitely piqued a lot of people's interest. So let's let's bring Cuba into the United States, and we'll just make it a slave state um, to overthrow the balance. That's why the over, whole overthrow the balance, Kansas, right. all that. I mean, this right. is all within exactly. Th- this is people. People's parents uh, are alive during the time of bleeding Kansas here when this is all going on. Yeah, so. absolutely. And then in 1845. There's a guy, actually a journalist by the name of John L. O'Sullivan, who writes this little thing called Manifest Destiny. Uh-oh. You might have heard of that one. Uh, Manifest Destiny, it was his um, opinion that um, it's really destined by God, right, to, uh, to the deity that all of uh, North America is going to become this uh, free lo- freedom-loving Republican kind of a a republic that uh, even though we still have Cuba under Spain and we still have Texas, because he was big on annexing Texas and make that a slave state. He was also big on uh, solving the problem with the British up in Oregon as to that became part of the United States. Well, he writes this thing with the Manifest Destiny. And even in 1848, President Polk offers the Spanish government $100 million to buy Cuba. They refuse. A few years later, after the uh, Republicans take office or take control uh, again of the presidency, Franklin Pierce now ups it to $130 million, and they still refuse. Um, That whole slave issue really, with the Civil War, things kind of went, you know, (laughs) on a a back simmer, but— now, by the time William Randolph Hearst and, and um, Pulitzer are now reporting on the atrocities that are going on in Cuba, people kind of forget about that whole issue of pre-Civil War. And, yeah, you know, Cuba would be pretty nice. That's a pretty good trade partner. Why don't it worked we just in make Hawaii. It Why wouldn't it work <laughs> right. with Cuba? Right, right. And it worked with Texas. I or mean, Queen Lily Right, absolutely. Other, other uh, previous... Uh, loser episodes that, mm-hmm. you know, um, if you want something, just take it. Um, and that was pretty much the opinion until they had this secret meeting with U.S. Um, envoys with the French and the British and the Spanish about actually buying Cuba. Um, but then it, it that whole secrecy thing was leaked. And part of that 
meeting was, well, if they don't sell it to us, we're just going to go to war with them. And then that kind of changed the tide of opinion. There's not a ship out in the harbor out there that gets remembered or anything, is there? Yeah, and that whole yellow journalism, I mean, Hearst and and they're selling papers. So they're making up stories. Some of it was, uh, you know, a little bit of fact-based, but not so much. There was uh, one incident where um, Spanish officials came aboard an American ship and um, took somebody into custody. So now they're on an American vessel, mm-hmm. took somebody into custody. It was reported that she was then, this woman was then strip searched by male Spanish government officials. And it was even an illustration by a guy, maybe you heard of this guy, Frederick Remington. He was also, he was also <laughs> on the Hearst uh, payroll for the paper. Um, that uh, he draws this illustration not having any idea what was really went on as it turns out yeah there was a search but I mean they would just make up they would just make up stuff to scandalize the whole thing and and to try to sell newspapers because people well, now, the like exact to read quote, that shit. too the exact quote by the way of one of Hearst's agents that's over in Cuba as he goes hey everything's pretty calm over here like I'm reading the papers it says we're about to go to war but everything's pretty normal here what do you want me to do? Do you want me to come back home? And Hearst gave the the absolute, his most infamous line. Uh, Please remain. Uh, you furnish the pictures. I'll furnish the war. Right. So he's like, we're going right. to, we're, we're coming no matter what. We're going to piss these people. And then the USS Maine blows up, which then gives America the sympathetic kind of uh, move towards, you know, uh, now this is how we're going to rally everybody for our, our just cause. And meanwhile, Hearst and Pulitzer making bank off of this at least they thought they were they're also losing a lot of money too because Hearst himself goes over there Uh, Hearst was given a a shot up American flag uh, from some of the the fighting on the coast over there as a a thank you for his service because they they looked they looked at him like he was you know almost uh, uh, not to tip our hat to a future episode but it was almost like uh, he was a part of the war effort to himself you know in a a, a private capacity but uh, very interesting here he uh he goes ahead. Him and Pulitzer actually kind of patch things up a little bit after this. So I want to just, for time's sake, I want to get into the later half of Hearst. Life, sure, that's what's really the most interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, the, but the the main the main was a, a U.S. naval ship yes, that sir. was blown up, and of course it was uh, reported um, by this yellow journal uh, journalism that um, it was the Spanish government that blew it up with a underground mine, uh, underwater mine or a torpedo. Um, you know, that was never, and there was actually a, a naval uh, uh, review, military review, and then their findings were, yeah, it was probably blown up by some unknown source, mm-hmm. but it was blown up. That was later dispelled all the way up into 1974. They said it was probably an internal explosion, not an external explosion. Uh, but, saboteur was the, yeah, the thing I had yeah. heard, too. Um so now he's made all of his money. This war that, you know, and again, this is why he had this reputation as a war hawk because men are dying over there. People are dying. He's profiting off of it. That would kind of be uh, war profiteering, uh, war hawk, whatever you want to call him. But he's also, uh, he's linking things up with uh, Pulitzer. They're kind of shaking hands right now. They're walking away from it. And uh, they've both made, you know, a decent amount of money with this. But the empire that Hearst now has is even larger. He's now had a success in New York like he wanted. He has higher aims, okay? So he's already got the success in New York. It's time to move on to other places. He's now able to expand his brand to 28 additional papers. Seattle, Georgia, Boston, Detroit, Washington, D.C. Okay, 
During this time, Hearst also opened up the International Film Studio. You hear that, Kahuna? I'm listening. To gain further control and profits off of his widely popular cartoon comic strips. So you have Disney to thank for a lot of this. You also, unfortunately, have William Randolph Hearst to thank for a lot of the popularity of your beloved cartoons. So you thought you were just having an innocent hobby. Really, you're supporting the American war machine. <laughs> well, what had happened was... <laughs> By the way, I pulled up a picture of this dude. This one in particular, is it just me or does this dude, like, with the, with the coat, does it look like he's going to pull pull the coat out and be like, yo, you want to buy a watch and none of them work? <laughs> Either that or he's challenging you to a fiddle contest. I look at him and I see, I see Legal Eagle from uh, the Muppets. <laughs> yes, I see. Indeed. Oh, shit, Sam. Mm, oh, no. <laughs> we'll uh, post a picture of him for the loser thing on Instagram, which, guys, check us out. I'll post more content on there. But moving on here, Hearst's Chicago-based paper. thought this one was interesting here. He's a populist paper in San Francisco. He's left-leaning in New York. He actually gets commissioned by the Democratic National Committee to have a paper over in the Chicago area. So you would say what you want about President Trump or whatever. At the end of the day, fake news, there's a lot of truth to it. We just talked about it started an entire fucking war, fake news, all right? Uh, A lot of people made a lot of money, so there's no way to regulate that. But now the DNC is saying we actually need to bring a left-leaning paper in here to try to balance things out. And it gets very interesting because there's a couple of things that uh, we're going to move around with the time a little bit because uh, Hearst's life does not happen in one singular moment. It's, it's a, a culmination of everything with him. But I thought this was interesting. He starts out as like a progressive kind of working man's liberal. And his idea is that he wants to have – it's his ideas and he wants to feel like he's connected to his readership. So if he's presenting the ideas that they like, then he's going to go with that. So you know who he winds up supporting for president? He is one of the only papers to support for President William Jennings Bryan, another former American loser. All right. Uh, now, as we all know, William Jennings Bryan lost because uh, you don't fuck with TR. Now, does that backfire rapidly on William Randolph here? No. Uh, it's very funny because uh, he, William Jennings Bryan, loses to uh, Teddy Roosevelt. William Jennings Bryan uh, is going to run into another Roosevelt down the road. <laughs> so. Um, where it gets more interesting, though, is that now Hearst's papers are talking endlessly about uh, uh, that there's this overwhelming amount of money that's being spent on McKinley to get this guy, William McKinley, a fucking dud, the, the know-nothing governor of uh, Ohio, is now uh, able to beat William Jennings Bryan, the most charismatic man, the great commoner. A guy, right. I, I loved the episode about him. If you haven't listened to that one, please check out William Jennings Bryan, one of my favorite losers. But he was a guy that was going to come in there and really disrupt some shit. So in a back room filled with cigar smoke, uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, and Andrew Carnegie sat down and uh, smoked a couple cigars and said, who are we going to run for president against this motherfucker? Right. And they picked William McKinley. All right. And spent an enormous amount of money. Four to one. To try to beat So he was William in those Jennings kind Ryan. of meetings. Yeah. Right. So, for, yeah. so now Hearst uh, is reporting about this. And pretty honestly, too, by the way, he's not winning over favorites with like the big money Rockefeller Republican types in New York City. Right, but which is going to wind up backfiring on him. Although he is big money in his own right, he is correct. And a lot of it, by the way, uh, they do talk about he owned the paper so much that he was the first media magnate. That if he wanted what what he said in the morning, if he if he like had a quote while he's talking to his men there, it was going to be uh, in that evening's edition of the paper. But it was also going to be on that evening's radio program, and it was going to be in next week's weekly magazine. I mean, it was he's the media the press, the media giant. 
And like you said, too, that's a good point, though, that newspapers today, we think, well, it comes out maybe once a day or once a week. Mm-hmm. Back then, you'd have the morning edition, the afternoon edition, and the evening edition. You might have one paper that's putting out three papers a day because mm-hmm. that's how powerful that media was at the time. That was the, the media source. Now, uh, here's my favorite. Uh, he also moves into the magazine trade. And uh, here's our big kahuna, John, the floor moment for the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, Hearst still has several magazines still in circulation to this day. So, what? what? Good housekeeping. Town and country. Harper's Bazaar. And kahuna, if you know anyone who has ever read Cosmopolitan. Shut the hell up. No, are, are you serious? They are all Hearst properties to this day. Are you kidding me? Absolutely correct. So he moved into the magazine business, too. He's now got 28 newspapers. He's got all the magazines out there. He's got the radio show. He's got all... He is... He is... Um, Wait a minute. He's the Rupert Murdoch of his day. What's the? What was the first one you read off? Good Housekeeping. I was at their headquarters well, about see? two weeks ago, because we have another podcast in here, and they did an interview with someone who's an editor there. So I went to the headquarters of this place Was in New York. Was their last name Hearst? No, thank God. <laughs> but no, I mean, that's that's so bizarre. That's we'll, so We'll cover weird. her in another episode, but one of Hearst's descendants is Patty Hearst, which will be a great episode. Um, so, <laughs> Yeah, that was a little... Well, bank uh, robbery went bad. Now here we are in a 1929. Little? All right, Hearst's empire is in full swing. He is using his considerable wealth and influence to guide the national discussion to wherever he sees it. So I just said Rupert Murdoch, that's the guy that owns Fox and all that other stuff. Um, He was able to uh, use his powers to involve himself in some larger-than-life endeavors. Ladies and gentlemen, a New Jersey tie-in presents itself to us. William Randolph Hearst. Not only are we getting a New Jersey reference, we're getting a callback to another episode and with one of Kahuna's favorites. William Randolph Hearst used his wealth to sponsor the first round-the-world voyage in an airship Zeppelin. The, the flight was piloted by Dr. Hugo Eckner on LZ-129, the Graf Zeppelin. Hearst only agreed to sponsor the flight if he could have his journalists on board and that the flight would begin out of Lakehurst, New Jersey, where just a decade and a half later, the Hindenburg disaster would take place. So, oh my God. Among Hearst's representatives on board, oh no. the Zeppelin at the time included Grace Marguerite Hay Drummond Hay. Okay. Which is not a song. That's a person's name. Um, she is the first woman to travel around the world by air. So. Song name? That's a band name. Say yeah, that one more time. Right. <laughs> it always reminds me of George <laughs> Collins. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey. <laughs> I always love that one George Carlin line he had, too, when he, talked about, he had the, a bit he was doing called Free Floating Hostility, and it was just a bunch of little things that annoyed him. And he goes, I hate that when you meet these women that won't take their husband's last names. He goes, I'm so-and-so, so-and-so, slash ball. I go, hey, lady, pick a fucking name. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now, as if he wasn't busy enough here, our boy Hearst, Willie Randolph, is also doing, he's, he's running for political office at this time. Um, his career is marked by uh, early populist opinions and then the working class democratic leanings, like I said, to align himself with his readers. But in his later years, he becomes a staunch conservative which earns him enemies now on both sides of the aisle. A little bit more on that here later. But so I imagine this meeting, because he's sitting in the, those fucking who are we putting in for president meetings. So who are we going to put in this year, boys? Yeah. How about myself? 
William, sit down. No, how about my show? He's, weird, he's, he's against them, and then when he winds up aligning with them later on in life, he does a full on 180. Really? Uh, he does a full 180, like to, to the point where people are like, what? what? I don't. I did not expect. Yeah, this is not the Hearst we know. Yeah, so Cause he's going because from- he's still the. The liberal leaning side, right? Or is he, he's a, is he kind of central or not? Like, where is he, where is he at this point in the story? It, it also gets crazy because the the terms we're using right now are not matching the zeitgeist of the time frame that he's uh, existing in. Because so, what we know as a Democrat is different from what we yeah, what the Democrat uh, was back in the day. It's, Same it's, as they always talk about that too. Is that uh, with Teddy Roosevelt's coming as that he's running as the Republican candidate, but he was wound up being a more progressive president than most. It's very weird. So the, the timetables are always changing with this stuff, and it changes in thirty year alignments. That's why over the course of his life, it's not un it's not un, unfathomable for him to have a like a, a true you know that he's staying true to himself, but the parties are you know aligning differently. So. Uh. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Uh, Hearst won his first two elections to Congress, but then would go on a series of embarrassing losses that made him the target of regular ribbing. Okay, Hearst ran for mayor and governor of New York on several occasions, all unsuccessful. Hearst had originally aligned himself with the progressive movement, like we were talking about, hoping that his readers would become his voting bloc as well. Now, Dad, when you're a Democrat seeking office in New York City during the early (laughs) 1900s, yeah. Is there any sort of a political machine we may have covered in the three-part series uh, on this here three podcast? Part series, I think it was uh, Tam, 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 <laughs> Tammany oh, Hall, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, that if you uh, are the Democratic candidate, you have the backing of Tammany Hall. Those are the ones that Kahuna tuned out on because uh, he, uh. he heard Tammany Tiger and he got excited. We're like, no, 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 it's uh, Tammany, not, not Tony. Tigger. <laughs> hey, give me the benefit of the doubt here. You are. Oh, man. Hearst uh, begins as a strong ally of, yes, you guessed it, ladies and gentlemen, Tammany Hall until 1907. Now, here's that swing we're going to talk about, Goins. When Hearst, in 1907, breaks away from them to form his own party. So he takes a playbook right out of the old Teddy Roosevelt, Bull Moose Progressive Party. Uh, It does not go over well for him. Uh, Now, the move motivates Tammany when he decides to break from them. Tammany decides they're going to cost Hearst the election by any means necessary. And, (laughs) And it works. Hearst never holds public office again. All right. Now, Hearst was a war hawk for the Spanish-American War, but get this, he staunchly opposed the U.S. entrance into World War I. He didn't want what he thought to be American troops dying for European affairs. He did not like Woodrow Wilson. He didn't. He despised the idea of the League of Nations, and he didn't trust any nation that was. So he's almost like uber patriot. Like you call him the Captain America. There's almost that sense where he's like, we're the only ones that I can trust. He's not Captain America, he's Captain America, which is unfortunate. (laughs) Well, um, it got interesting here because he was so uh, against the U.S. going into World War I that he didn't want the American troops dying in the European affairs, which is kind of a noble thing. His papers made the position so loudly known that when troops were coming home, Hearst was told he was not allowed to be present on the docks when the, the ships carrying the troops was coming back home. And he agreed finally after protest. He goes, all right, guys, I won't be there. Then showed up the day of anyway and took a picture with everybody coming back in. So it's a famous photo, too. It's on the uh, I'll, I'll find it on the, online here later. But um, so he's an interesting guy. He gets the quick photo opportunity, much to the chagrin of his enemies. Hearst's empire still in full swing here. He essentially controlled the news despite his political failings. He's regarded as one of the most successful men in the country. You got to look on your face, LP. What am I forgetting? No, no, no. You're, you're good. You're good. Uh-oh. Okay. I got nervous for a second, dude. No, no. Um, however, like all Americans around this time, there's a little thing called the Great Depression that's about to test his resolve. Now, I'm going to talk about the word hubris for a second. You familiar with that, Cahoons? Uh, yes. Okay, it's the excessive pride that leads to a fall. So, 
Uh, the Greeks always talk about it, but uh, as a boy, Hearst had enjoyed camping up in the hills of his father's property in San Simeon. After his father's death, he inherited like $11 million from his trust. That's not the entire fortune, but that was a big chunk of the fortune. That's yeah, a good start. Yeah, so if you had to take it, I guess you yeah, would. Yeah, back then, 11 mil. So uh, he's out there. He always liked San Simeon. That's where he kind of grew up. And uh, he decided it's time to build a, a permanent residence up there. And he commissions Julia Morgan, one of the finest architects in the entire world, also happens to be a lady. Now, the reason that's important is because she is the foremost. She's considered like one of the best architects of all time. Uh, she's definitely the best female architect of all time, really. And she's one of the first ones that's ever allowed to study it. And I'm going to slaughter the pronunciation of the school, so I won't even bother saying it. But there's a very esteemed architectural program in uh, Paris that she was the only woman at the time that was allowed to attend. So that's how much promise she was showing. Now, she's cool here. Um, they go ahead, and this is the exact quote that Hearst gives her. He goes, hey, uh, let's build something a little bit more comfortable up on that hill. Now, Dad, you saw this fucking castle. That's it, it's comfortable, <laughs> no doubt. Oh, what is God. it today? Uh, it's still standing. You can still see it. Is it like a museum, or is it, it just is, like it has been turned into a museum? Kahuna's like one of those guys that skips to the end of the book to find out if he wants to finish it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's a huge. That is not true. It's a huge tourist attraction. It's it's definitely worth going to check out because it's unbelievable. Just in the pictures alone. Yeah, it's it's, it's just it's, awe-inspiring. You to, really can't also, describe it because it's Also, nothing. to be fair, I understand why they don't grant permission for anybody to film in there. When you actually look at pictures of this place, because I perused a little bit. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Film equipment, scratch it all up. Like, it, yeah. like yeah, there's no way in hell. Here's a weird one for you. This is completely off topic, but we'll just say it because it's fun. Um, Larry Burke, uh, the man in front of me here, uh, his summer camp as a Boy Scout... Uh, was Camp Noby Bosco off of Route 80 in uh, northern New Jersey. Noby Bosco standing for North Bergen Boy Scout Camp. Right. In the movie Friday the 13th, the camp that was used as Camp Crystal Lake is the very camp that uh, I've been camping Get out of here. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And is had, it still there? Yep. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Now, the stories we heard, that, and I, you can't tell who's full of shit up there either because they're all storytellers, but... Um, <laughs> Um, <laughs> but supposedly they left uh, the place a mess. That when production left there, that there was still like uh, blood on the wall, like fake blood on the wall, stuff like that. Then the, the one rumor was that there was a, a, a dead body uh, figure, like you know, like a like a fake one yeah. that they left out in the river. So it always gets funny with that stuff. But I, I totally get what you're saying about scratching things up here. Now we're going to talk about a movie again. All right. So I think I know this one. I think you're going to like this too, buddy, because I, I know a little too much about this. Um, <laughs> yeah, so. we got another uh, three hours to go here. All right, let's, let's do this. Pontificates on this one. I'm ready. Um, so now uh, construction begins and continues for over 20 years on what will become Hearst Castle, which is still visible today. You can go out there and check it out. Guests who would stay in the place would approach the 40,000-acre property by boat, to attend parties and gatherings at the castle. They would be guided through upon landing from the boat through the private zoo, shown Hearst's insane collection of high-end art and other antiquities. He's got fucking zebras and lions and tigers and shit running around in his personal zoo, all right? Uh, he winds up donating all of that to the L.A. Zoo uh, as he's realizing his, his life's coming to an end, um, as he did with a lot of the stuff here. But he's got some crazy-ass shit. Here's some stuff he had in his possession as a collector and an art collector. He had George Washington's waistcoat and Thomas Jefferson's personal Bible. All right? 
that's like that, that but if you if you could see that you'd kind of want to see it you're like that was held by that like that's a connection to history you know right into your past um now here's where it gets crazy as always because hearst just i mean these were lavish parties in a gorgeous place over here the parties often lasted multiple days originally intended Damn, great gatsby Shit. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's loosely the, that's based off it yeah. Him too? He's based off of Gaps? Well, Gapsy. There's a part of it. Gatsby. Yeah. There's definitely a part of it. Because now, remember, Gatsby's going to be a bootlegger. So that's going to happen in the 1920s. But this is the height of the Roaring Twenties over here when Hearst is having the castle and uh, the guests are coming. Wait till you hear the fucking guest list I found. Um, so originally, when this house was being built uh, and designed by Julia Morgan for the 20-year duration she was there with him the entire time. Now, if only poor Julia Morgan uh, could have you know, traveled a little bit further south and maybe helped out Sarah Winchester with that weird-ass house with hallways that go nowhere. I was nowhere. just going to say, man. <laughs> I was like, yo, why not give Sarah Winchester a call? <laughs> but, uh, it, again, it was originally intended to be the home for Hearst, his wife uh, Millicent, and uh, their five sons. Now, uh, Hearst had separated not legally from Millicent and taken up residence uh, in, in Hearst Castle without her. Now, what's interesting is that uh, we'll talk about it later, but there's a movie made largely about um, William Randolph Hearst's life, uh, and the character that they come up with is called uh, Charles Baxter Kane or Charles Charles Foster Kane. I'm sorry. And uh, so it's Charles Foster Kane is uh, sitting and his beautiful wife, you know, is sitting across from him, and they're, they're they're sitting next to each other at a dining room table, and there's no dialogue in the entire scene. That's why this was a very important scene because then um, then she's sitting one seat further away, and then over the year, and then they're, now they're at the other end of uh, the table, staring down at each other, and now he's got the newspaper out, and she's ignoring him, and they just can't stand each other. So, with no dialogue whatsoever, Orson Welles creates the idea of these people grew apart. So, that's what winds up happening. And like most men who are uh, highly wealthy, um, he goes ahead and gets himself a, a mistress. And this one just happens to be an actress named uh, Marion Davies. Okay, uh, Davies was a highly attractive but largely talentless, and owed the bulk of her fledgling career to her involvement with Hearst. So. He's got like a kind of a failed actress thing going on. So it's, uh, you know, like if, if, if I'll put myself in the shoes here, all right, if I was William Randolph Hearst and I was existing in the modern day sense right now and I was looking for, you know, uh, some sort of a side, I would probably go with Megan Fox. <laughs> you know, I'd find a way to make that work. Oh, so, no. But uh, check this out. So now he's partying like an emperor. He's got his own. It, it's not an island, but it feels you're so isolated that, that I mean, he, there is a king vibe going on here with these friggin' Yeah, parties. when you got 40,000 acres, you, <laughs> you, you don't have to worry about the neighbors uh, calling the cops because you're making too much noise at your parties. Which is hilarious because guess uh, some of the, the stars that he had uh, probably made a lot of noise when they were partying, but made no noise during the films they were in because they were from the silent era. Get a load of this. The guests included the Marx Brothers. Clark Gable, uh, Greta Garbo, Charlie Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin, <laughs> and even political figures such as President Calvin Coolidge and future Prime Minister of England Winston Churchill. All right, who wouldn't want to go out there, man, for these friggin' parties? Like, who wouldn't want to party there? Yeah, you get that invite, you're going. I don't care what you're doing <laughs> that day, well, but the other you're going. Now, you wanted to see this because that was like uh, the, the party of a lifetime, but also if you refused his offer, there was the idea that he could hurt you because he was so plugged in in Hollywood. Right. You know, uh, just look what's going on with, you know, any of the celebrities nowadays. You get blacklisted, you're done. Now, did he 
also produce a lot of stuff in Hollywood, or was he just kind of more on the like executive end of things? That's why he kind of had control. Or a little it? bit of both, because what he did a lot was that he tried to make his wife a star, and she just couldn't be a star. Like she, she would have moderate success at best. So, um, but what was uh, I thought was interesting here is like we were saying that this not is not necessarily his wife, though. You said his wife wasn't. Oh, his, his wife is. Uh, here's the saddest part. Uma. The saddest part of this whole story is that uh, they present. Um, the daughter that he had with uh, Marion, right? They present that as uh, as his niece, in order to try to keep appearances up. Oh, okay. So, oh, it's my niece. She stays with us. I definitely, you know, it's not my my right. Well, what's the 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 female version of a bastard child, an out of wedlock child? Is it just? It's it's not still a bastard. No, I'm. Uh, listen, I'm a feminist, and I demand equality. I want a dirty word for <laughs> women to be called who are born out of wedlock. Um, but love child. Yeah, there it is. Love child's good. That's very good, and no sex attached to it too. Look at you, progressive Larry. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, now Hearst didn't have many friends on the right wing side of politics due to his papers leftward leaning, but now that Hearst himself is leaning more towards the right. Uh, he once fondly endorsed Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but shortly after hearing the details of the New Deal, he became Roosevelt's chief critic. He was completely against um, all sorts. He didn't like the idea of big government. He didn't like government having too much power, uh, and he felt like he could go tyrannical in a heartbeat if it had a charismatic leader. Who's more charismatic than FDR, a guy we forget was in a wheelchair most of the time? Right. You know? Like they said that when he would walk into a room, FDR, like literally pun it, he would wheel himself into a room. He'd have the, the cigarette going with like the cigarette holder, and he was just funny dude, charismatic. Everybody was drawn to him. And, uh, you know, he was serving in office a little bit of time, yeah. almost a tiny emperor reign there. So I understand the fear of it. Uh, luckily, it's been proven not to be true. But uh, what I thought was interesting here is that he is uh, criticizing the New Deal, and he, uh, he, does not like FDR. He starts going after him. He starts putting his papers on. He goes, fuck FDR. All right? Fuck everybody he's associated with. Write it in the paper. And they're sitting there. They're writing all these articles up. And now his own readers who have, you know, come to him for the progressive slant on the news for years are like, FDR is the only guy helping us. He's, he try, we're, we're trying something. We're stimulating the economy. Are we borrowing from socialism? Yes. Are we borrowing from, you know, a private sector? Yes. We're doing anything that works because we can't have stagnation anymore. All right? Because that's what uh, Herbert Hoover had he decided he goes it'll pass yeah, it'll, right. and he went from being Her Hoover was one of the most popular men in America to then being the most hated president possibly ever because it didn't do nothing because he didn't do it because he said oh I'm a hands off laissez faire kind of attitude on this so people at least like FDR because he was you know trying to make something happen I, I understand that now uh, it's it's not going well for him FDR is trying to guide America back to prosperity Hearst is gaining uh, uh, he's also critical again now of the idea of American troops possibly getting involved in what looks like it could be escalating into a second world war. Um, Hearst was actually, they, they were going after him all the time for not being hard on Hitler. Of all people to not be hard on, right? So he won't attack Hitler directly. Now, some people said it's because he had a large German-speaking um, uh, reader readership because he would have the German papers, which uh, is interesting to think about. But now... Um, he actually reaches out to Jewish leaders in Berlin and says, hey, if I come over there, is this going to be something that would help you guys? And they agreed it would be helpful. So he comes over to Berlin, and William Randolph Hearst sits down with Adolf Hitler and interviews him. Okay. Now, in the interview, uh, Hitler asks him, he goes, he goes hey, uh, why am I being so misrepresented and uh, misunderstood by the American papers? 
and William Randolph Hearst, who hadn't gone after Hitler at first, you thought he was going to be soft on Hitler, literally says to him, he goes, oh, it's because uh, Americans, we like democracy, not dictators. He pretty much called him a tyrant to his face. Oh. So a little bit of set of balls on that one here. He was wheeled out and never seen again. It's well, he, uh, he, he starts coming around on that one because, I mean, there's no way to deny um, that Hitler had to go. Um, now, uh, even standing up to Hitler, though, did not help him start to sell more papers. He nearly had to sell his entire magazine business. You're not ready for this name drop. Um, he's not doing well. Readership is down. He's losing money in the newspaper business. So a friend of his says, hey, I'll buy all your magazine business off of you. All those magazines we talked about earlier, Good Housekeeping. Ladies and gentlemen, what is the name? John P. Kennedy. He had a couple of sons. One of them was president for a little bit. Yeah. For a, for a little bit. Yeah, maybe maybe they're considered like the American royal family almost. Is that fair to say about the Kennedys? Was that John Kennedy or Joe Kennedy? Uh, John P. Kennedy. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, of the Kennedy family, this would yeah. be uh, um, almost bootlegging um, the yeah. Kennedys. Um, John had John Jr. who became president. So this is this is John F. Kennedy's dad or his... John Patrick Kennedy is what I have over here. Actually, can you pull that up while we're talking on it? Sure. No so the next thing I want to say is the financial advisors, they wind up intervening on Hearst's behalf upon realizing that uh, the media magnate dad... He's, uh, he's not matching the numbers and the zeros where he needs him to. Uh, he's a little in debt to the tune of $10 million. $10 million. So And $10 million was in chump change. Him? Yeah, that would be him, sir. Joseph P. Joseph. Kennedy. What yeah, I call Joe him, John? Kennedy. You said John. You said That's John. They're always Joseph. slapping their names around. Jack Kennedy, <laughs> John. Whatever, you dumb mick bastards. <laughs> So now yeah, get Joe, Papa Joe, and then Papa Joe had John F. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, who later became president of the United States. Because it was Joe Jr. who died. Joe Jr. Kennedy died in uh, the Second World War. He was a pilot, I think. Yeah. Um, now uh, that ten million dollars that he's in debt over here, uh, Hearst is now he has to stop making the motion pictures he was involved with. He sells his animal collection to the L.A. Zoo. And is forced to auction off so much of his art collection, which, get this, is oddly picked up by members of the Rockefeller family for use at their own new venture. You're not ready for this, Kahuna. The Rockefellers, all right? Standard Oil. They own Colonial Williamsburg. What? So when you go to Colonial <laughs> Williamsburg, you are standing on the blood and oil that built this. <laughs> Where nobody's innocent. We're all complacent. During this time, Hearst is now forced to take First loans. First, you wrecked my cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> now you're wrecking all this fun stuff. Come on. Uh, I, I, this is why I like you. You hear Williamsburg and think it's fun. Uh, <laughs> I liked it. I found out I was alone on a lot of that. Um, during this time, Hearst is forced to take loans. Get this. This guy, the media magnate, the, 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 the palace on the hill, All right, the guy who was the god of news in America, is forced to take a loan from his own mistress who sold her own jewelry to raise over $1 million to give to her sugar daddy, baby daddy. Um, he also found out around this time frame, as if things aren't going bad enough for him, his life story is being told in a less than flattering light in a film by a guy by the name of Orson Welles, being produced by RKO Studios in a motion picture called Citizen Kane. Charles Foster Kane... Oh, is, what, he didn't love it? That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if you've ever seen the movie, and you have to see it, um, 
I took a television production class in high school, and I, I didn't really like the technical aspects of TV, like the whole, you know... Uh, uh, Ready camera one. Yeah, I, just, yeah. I, I wasn't fascinated. Soundboard, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, you put, <laughs> yeah. Put, put me in a writer's room. That's where I'm happy. So, uh, But my teacher was John Randall, who I did not like, but I was the only one in his class, and he had to admit it, and he, he gave me good respect for it. I give him credit for that, that I was the only one that got an A-plus uh, on the paper that we had to write about Citizen Kane because I watched the movie when we watched it in class for a week I loved every second of it this movie it does not get the credit it deserves because it's it's first of all it's brilliant the story's great everything's great about it but he's got unconventional storytelling methods there's also weird ass camera angles like uh, there's there's one sound of uh, I believe it's like a bolt of lightning that they do a jump cut to the bolt of lightning and uh, the thunder that's coming with it so these are all brand new techniques being seen. Uh, oh, in the, the first jump scare. Yeah, the first jump scare. Now here's my other one that I love too, is that uh, at one point in order to uh, get a shot of uh, uh, Citizen Kane himself to look like uh, you know, as intimidating as possible, they chopped a hole in the floor and put the camera in the floorboard so that he could cast a menacing shadow as he walked over to it. I mean, there was so much cool shit going on in this movie. It's one of the greatest films of all time. You know what I think happened? I think with as far as like why people don't watch it is because it is considered the greatest movie of all time. So as long as you know that, you don't have to watch it, which is a weird thing. Boo. No, trust. Boo. I'm not saying. I, yeah. I'm not saying I don't. But like, think about it. It's that mob mentality. It's like, oh, as long as I know that it's a great movie, then I'm fine. Right. I don't have to see it. I can talk about it without ever seeing it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, one of my favorites was the the Simpsons when they went to uh, Planet Hollywood, and Homer goes, "Oh my God, it's the Kane from Citizen Kane," <sighs> and then Lisa goes, "Wait a minute." <laughs> um, but in the movie, this is what they talk about, those uh, unconventional uh, storytelling, uh, pioneering vision, use of jump cut edits, montages, unique camera work, that really cool scene I talked about where they don't use any dialogue, but they tell you an entire chunk of the guy's life. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Um, but the film follows Kane through his failed marriage, his embarrassing political career, and his reckless and ruthless newspaper work. So Hearst is down, but not powerless in this one. He uses absolutely every favor he has at his disposal from his Hollywood friends, a lot of them who would come out and hang out with him, uh, you know, at... Uh, back in the old days. Back when, in San Simeon. good. Yeah. So um, he's using a lot of these favors in order to help hinder the success of the movie. So they're, they're able to kill a lot of the promotion of it. And he hurts um, Orson Welles' career forever. Orson Welles, another Jersey tie-in, War of the Worlds. That's your favorite one right there, Kahuna. <laughs> All right, broadcast out of New Jersey. So now um, this is the little fuck you that I found out that I thought was so interesting. Um, you hear this story, you just hear about the genius of Orson Welles and how it was suppressed, if you will, and that he should have been our greatest star and our most brilliant director. And uh, Orson Welles had to actually self-fund a lot of his projects after this because no studio would touch him because there was the fear of retribution from William Randolph Hearst. So, well, when you're that dope, listen... He is it pretty happens. dope, but you're, this is the one you're... I don't think you're ready for this one, Cones. Um, in the movie, the mystery of the movie in uh, Citizen Kane is to find out what uh, Kane's dying words are, because he dies in the first scene of the movie. And he dies, and the last words he says are, Rosebud, okay? Now, it's revealed. There's spoiler alert. Sorry, guys. If, you're, if you didn't watch this movie back in 1930, <laughs> yeah. you're fucked. The um, spoiler veil has been lifted, okay? I so, think, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what winds up happening is his dying words are Rosebud, and at the end of the movie, they realize that Rosebud was actually uh, his childhood sled from when he was growing up as a boy. Okay. And it was that he uh, 
all the money he had in the world, all the power, all the relationships, everything, can't buy happiness. So that's an underlying you know, uh, theme of the movie. Now, what I loved is that uh, Rosebud in the movie has this beautiful connotation in true life. William Randolph Hearst was known to refer to Marion Davies, his mistress's vagina, as her rosebud. So this dude made a movie about your wife's pussy. No, your mistress's. I'm so, you're correct, yes. Your, <laughs> your side piece's pussy. If there's a bigger fuck you than, than that, <laughs> I, I implore someone... To, to tell me, Jesus. <laughs> and by the way, that, oh, that Orson little... Welles, from that to the Transformers movie, where what happened? <laughs> He's the greatest, man. Oh, um, man. Well, he, Orson Welles was the voice of Optimus Prime, is that it? No. Or what was he? You, Unicron. I say I wouldn't know that. Um, I, was, I, was, I wasn't I was a nerd like you, Kahuna. I liked fun shit like pro wrestling. <laughs> nerd and proud, damn it. What you got against Transformers? It's, uh, no, I'm, I support all trans issues. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, now, the film, Citizen Kane, is not a box office success, but it goes on to have uh, absolute critical acclaim. It is considered the number one movie of all time. It is consistently ranked. The only movies that have ever really beat it out, Godfather, um, Wizard of Oz, and Gone with the Wind. Those are the only movies that it's acceptable to make the argument for it to not be the greatest movie of all time. Um, fun fact here is we're starting to wrap up. LP, do you have anything else you want to add in? No, uh, I think I'm pretty much got it. Well, the, uh, the Hearst Company oddly returns to profit after World War II because the economy rebounds thanks to Franklin Delano Roosevelt and all those policies that Hearst wasn't a big fan of. But the media magnate's throne, he was never ascended to again. All right, Hearst would die at age 88 in Beverly Hills because in San Simeon he couldn't get the medical care that he needed. So he actually had to go down to Beverly Hills. So he left the estate. The estate was then left to um, the state of California as part of the U.S. National Historic Landmarks. Um, now, this one I found pretty great here because this is the story of America's first media magnate, a guy who he recovered, but he definitely lost um, more than he kept in terms of his fortune and everything like that. And the company's still around to this day. Now, he did have five sons in the ultimate little piece of irony here. Uh, all five sons followed their father's footsteps into the media business. And uh, William Randolph Hearst, one of his sons, one of his five sons, was named William Randolph Hearst Jr. Okay? And uh, Kahuna, he goes into journalism and becomes, get this, a Pulitzer Prize winner. <laughs> For journalism. <laughs> oh, man. That must have been an interesting meeting when they were like, we should give him an... We should give him a Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you a history lesson. That's <laughs> it's like the Hatfields getting the McCoy Medal of Honor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. But, uh, man, that uh, you read about this guy's life, and you, you try to find an angle, you know what I mean, to, uh, to, to bring yourself, you know, to, well, I'm looking for my own version of yellow journalism. I'm looking for the human interest part of the story with William Randolph Hearst. But his life, his entire life is... What's boring? What were we supposed to skip over? What, yeah. what wasn't important? Uh, yeah. Well, I started a war at 20. I also created the entire newspaper business. I have a giant... Ma like, I can't leave it. Yeah. It's like King Henry VIII. There's no part of his life that you're supposed to ignore. But I, I loved research in this one. LP, did you have anything that we didn't get to? You had some good research. No, I was just... Um, I found it interesting, too, while I was doing the research on this, is that people today, like, well, that news... That news, that, that news TV station or that news media is slanted to the left or to the right or to the center <laughs> or to the back or whatever, whatever, you know, you really can't get the correct news. Well, 
when could you? You know, that, that fake news is a term that we use today, but fake news has been around for as long as we've had news. Fake somebody, news is just the newest name. Right. It's the, it's the latest uh, handle that we're putting on, on version of yellow journalism. Back in, <laughs> back in the day. I mean, back in the day, in Hearst's time, we called it yellow journalism. I'm sure it was, you know, fake news uh, as long as there was politicians and the lying liars and the lies they tell that uh, you're always going to have somebody slant on things as to, they want it to appear the way they want it to appear and not what's, what is fact. And who's been a bigger beneficiary of yellow journalism than K.P. Burke, the 12-time winner of the Jacksonville Comedy Festival? <laughs> Three-time Academy Award winning. Like. <laughs> right. Someday we'll get you out to a show, Cahoon. You'll understand that reference a little better. <laughs> now, here's a unique building, the Hearst Tower in New York you have pulled up, right? Yeah. Now, uh, Kahuna, when you pulled this one up, your jaw dropped on the ground like... Uh, I was here. Yeah. I was in this building. This is... I don't know how else to describe it except someone was just like... Just have all the money you want and just put it in this building. It's beautiful. The design looks like a, a, a dildo made of diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> but so. it's it's kind of cool because I'm not the, saying the original, that, Kevin. It must be your point of view. Because <laughs> the original building below was around when they had founded the company, but when they wanted to expand, they completely gutted that interior. And that whole thing is basically a lobby. Whoa, okay. So then the rest of the corporation is up there. I went up. It's a really fascinating building, but fastest elevators I've ever been in in my life. <laughs> Yo, I felt like I was Making on a roller Express. coaster. Yeah. Yo, that shit was crazy. But yeah, this is, it was kind of wild because I, I thought I was here, but no, I was actually in this building recently because of a podcast here. So. Now that's Another Jersey tie-in. <laughs> I don't know if I like you doing other podcasts. I'm actually going to have to put my foot down on this pretty soon. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm not known as the big kahuna. Um, well, I'll tell you what. we got uh, got some crazy stuff going on over here. Uh, I'm excited. I want this podcast to come out as soon as possible. Um, I've got, uh, I mean, whatever. Check out my website, kpburkcomic.com, for uh, any upcoming dates. I do want you to come out to a show. You come out to a show. If you listen to the podcast, let me know. We'll talk to you. We'll figure something out. I'll buy you a beer, whatever you want to do, man. We have a good time with that shit. Um, check me out at, at KP Burke Sucks on Twitter and Instagram, KP Burke over on Facebook. Um, Just type what you feel and you can find KP. Yeah, pretty much, man. So it's uh, but, but check me out on that one. We got uh, uh, the YouTube stuff starting to pick up a lot, too. Uh, Roast Battle is back in New York City. I just want to plug my buddy's show. Uh, Matt Marin uh, does a great job of the show. It's called Comedy Fight Club. It's going to be every Tuesday at the brand new stand. Uh, go check that out, man. That's just I, I was there last night. It was like it's one of the most beautiful clubs I've ever seen. And that show is just stupid fun. So. Um, Lawrence Patrick, anything you want to say to the people at home? Uh, see ya. All right. <laughs> Short, and, uh, simple, and to the point. See you in the funny papers. So that's beautiful. I want to say again, thank you so much to a shared universe. Mike and Ming, you guys take great care of us. I can't wait to get Mike and Ming on the show sometime in the next couple weeks. We're going to talk about something very, very interesting I brought up for the comic book men. But uh, Kahuna, thank you for everything you do here, buddy. All right. Always. And uh, guys, uh, that was William Randolph Hearst, American Loser. American loser the day I was born An American loser the day I was born An American loser the day I was born